DW. Most of us think that we know what waste is. It's the plastic that's tightly wound around our vegetables from the supermarket and that milk carton that we drain and throw away. It's the cardboard box that our new laptop arrives in that we chuck in the bin. And eventually, it's that very laptop once it's no longer useful. Every year, the world produces roughly 2 billion metric tonnes of municipal waste. In weight, that's equivalent to around half a billion elephants. That's the garbage that we can see. But it's actually just the tip of the garbage iceberg. That waste that we're seeing is a tiny percentage of the overall waste arising, depending on where specifically you're looking. You know, it, it's between 2 and 3%. That's Josh Leporsky, a professor of geography at the Memorial University of Newfoundland in Canada, where he specialises in mapping and understanding the world's waste streams, electronics in particular. That figure, Josh explains, only captures what the average consumer puts in the trash can. Uh, the rest, the you know, 98 plus percent of waste, happened upstream in mining, in manufacturing, in distribution, before you even purchased whatever uh, item you're talking about. It's far less tangible and traceable than the garbage that people create when they decide to throw something away. For that reason, it's often called invisible waste. This is especially the case for electronics, which are both one of the biggest sources of invisible waste on the planet and the world's fastest growing waste stream. This stuff isn't easy to see or to quantify, but some researchers have had a crack. One study by Swedish Waste Management and Recycling Association, Alfalsfaria, calculated the invisible waste for a typical smartphone to be about 86 kilograms, which is around 190 pounds, or 1,200 kilograms for your average laptop, which is roughly 2,600 pounds. Part of the challenge of putting invisible waste into concrete terms is that many modern products, especially electronics, have long and complicated supply chains. And there's often a lot of hazardous waste involved in their manufacturing processes. That sounds bad, and often it can be. But it's important to point out that just because toxicity is involved, in extraction for example, doesn't necessarily mean that mining precious metals for technology is bad for the environment. Well, first of all, you know, any kind of industrial activity is likely to produce some kind of wastes, but the, the key issue is how well we can manage those wastes. Salim Ali is a professor of energy and environment from the University of Delaware in the US. So the challenge with rare earth mining is that a lot of the activity has happened in cases where there has not been that level of containment. However, that can be done uh, if there's just more investment made. To unpack this problem a bit more, which I find really fascinating, Charlie Shield is here in the studio with us to talk a little bit more about invisible waste. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Sam. I had no idea that there was so much industrial waste. I knew, obviously, that there was a lot, but 98% seems just massive when I think about just how much I throw away each week. So what strikes me from your research in these interviews that you did is the fact that although we spend a lot of time talking about the problem of e-waste piling up from us, like when we get rid of a phone and, oh my goodness, what do I do with it? How do I recycle it? And usually those products are going, unfortunately, somewhere in the global south, creating kind of toxic waste dumps. 
That doesn't really take into account the amount of waste generated just to make those products. Exactly. And the problem of e-waste is often framed in this way. That's something that Leporsky explores in his research. It's his perspective that focusing on e-waste as the stuff that we chuck in the bin at the end of its life is actually part of the problem because it blinds us to the amount of stuff that's thrown away to bring those products to life in the first place. So that's the waste generated, what they call upstream in mining and manufacturing. And so all of that waste does have to go somewhere. What are some examples of how this actual waste affects people and particularly ecosystems around the world? I mean, where is it all going? Well, anywhere that you have rare earth mining, you have massive, vast waste repositories. And if you don't monitor those properly, then there can be very toxic leakage, which has huge consequences for the ecosystem and the health of human communities. Around 90% of the world's rare earths are mined in China. There are huge copper mines in Chile, and a lot of titanium is mined in Australia. But a good example of the toxic consequences of electronic goods manufacturing is actually Silicon Valley. So most people would be familiar with Silicon Valley in California as the the tech hub, the original tech hub, right? Right. I think of it as where all the tech is created, but not necessarily where it's literally manufactured. Yeah. And interestingly, it's still a site of environmental cleanup from electronics manufacturing from back in the 1970s and the 1980s. Some of Google's facilities actually sit on top of these these sites that are still being cleaned up from 50 years ago. Yeah, I've actually seen photos of this before. I'm not sure about the specific Google one, but I have seen images in Silicon Valley of these like pools of waste and they're neon colors. I mean, bright blue, hot pink, like crazy colors that you would never imagine to see in nature from kind of that bird's eye view of maybe a plane flying over. And it's really remarkable stuff. Yeah, and scary. One consultant's report that Leporsky mentioned estimated that it would take another 700 years to clean up some of the nasty chemicals in those areas in Silicon Valley. Oh my goodness. So considering that making electronics requires the extraction of these precious metals, many of them finite resources, is it even possible to do this in a sustainable way? That's an interesting question. I put this to Salim Ali, who we also heard from in the earlier segment, and he said that although these precious metals are finite, they're infinitely renewable. But one of the problems that we have in taking advantage of their renewability is that many of them are now locked up in devices, electronic devices that are very difficult to deassemble and to actually extract them from to reuse them in remanufacturing. So when you say they're infinitely renewable, you mean they can be recycled and turned into different products or used again in future electronics, theoretically, right? Theoretically, exactly. And are there any examples of materials like this that are reused instead of being mined for new ones? It is done to some extent, and some of the big tech companies actually do have refurbishing programs in place. I know Apple offers its customers the opportunity to buy refurbished products. Many of these precious metals are being reused, but the fact is that there's the opportunity for many more of them to be recycled, and that's not happening. So why isn't that happening? 
Well, another problem is that these products aren't really designed to be remanufactured and recycled. So they're not particularly modular. So it's difficult to get these kind of things out from a computer screen. So what are some of the things that we can do to change this huge amount of invisible waste that's being produced? One attempt to shift more of the responsibility for this invisible waste from the consumer to the industry has been seen in the European Union, where we've had these laws introduced for extended producer responsibility and the right to repair. So in 2019, in the European Union, they announced a new law requiring manufacturers across Europe to improve electronic devices so that they lasted longer and were easier for consumers to fix themselves. But according to Leporsky, the most potential lies in changing the way that they're made. So the way that they're designed and also the way that they are mined and produced. He thinks that it's far more important to work collectively for consumer action, demanding change upstream where the majority of this waste is generated in the first place. And so that means focusing the attention on industry. Salim says that the industry will not change on its own and it needs government legislation to actually change the way it does things. And that, in a way, also requires us as consumers to put pressure on the government to introduce that legislation. All right. Well, thanks for this information, Charlie. Thanks, Sam. DW.